All right. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. I am Anna Halligan. Tonight, uh, we have a slightly different show than you may have heard on the promos. And that is because, unfortunately, um, I was originally going to interview the staff attorney and water rights expert for Trout Unlimited, Matt Clifford. Um, but unfortunately, he couldn't make it tonight. So instead, I am thrilled to have with me Patty Madigan, a project manager with the Mendocino County Resource Conservation District's Navarro River Watershed Conservation Program. Matt will be joining me next month, so we will still get an opportunity to pick his brain about California water law. But tonight I am live in the studio and I'm really fortunate to be able to have a discussion with Patty, who has been working and serving our community for most of her career and as such was the recipient of the Salmonid Restoration Federation's Lifetime Achievement Award this year. So Patty, it is great to have you with us tonight and I really appreciate the opportunity for you to sit down and talk with me. me... Thank you Anna, it's a pleasure to be with you. Great. Um, Well why don't we just start by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. Okay, Um, well let's see I've been living in Mendocino County for almost 40 years and I came here from the Bay Area um, I fell in love with Mendocino County as a teenager, going to a horse camp on the Navarro River at the Tumbling McDee Ranch, and I uh, made a pledge that I would someday return. I thought maybe I'd even live here, and voila, 40 years later, I am here, and I um, never really looked back. Um, I started out my Um, time here on the Mendocino Coast working in restaurants and had uh, a little cafe next to the Casper Inn for a while and during those those wonderful um, days of serving the public I got to meet some fisher people and they brought me salmon and I got really interested I come from a fishing family of um, sport fishers and really committed outdoor people And um, lo and behold, I had the opportunity to work for Fish and Wildlife when it was called Fish and Game and followed around um, legendary fisheries biologist Wendy Jones all up and down the Mendocino Coast and inland. Um, After that, I worked for various consultants and went back to school to Humboldt and landed a job with AmeriCorps in the AmeriCorps Watershed Project and served there for several years, and then um, have been with the um, Mendocino County um, Resource Conservation District for almost 21 years, and mostly working in the Navarro, but also up and down the coast. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, I live in Comshi now. <laughs> yeah, you, but you also serve um, on the Mendocino County. I think it's still called Fish and Game Commission, correct? They still it is. And then um, I also know that you're a member of a, a kind of regional collaborative group called the Wood for Salmon Work Group because we sit on that together. Yeah. So yeah, I think I was I've been on that since the beginning, and I don't attend as frequently as I would like. And with COVID, we haven't had face to face meetings, but 
right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great group. They're they're focused mostly on how to um, how to overcome some of the regulatory hurdles for putting wood in the stream, which, as you know, as we both know, because we just did a workshop together last weekend. Um, for years, there was a trend of taking wood out of the streams, and then it was determined that it was bad for salmon in uh, steelhead, and now we're putting wood back in. Um, maybe not quick enough, but um, we're doing it at a steady pace and um, doing a lot of outreach around that uh, with practitioners trying to uh, familiarize um, equipment operators and landowners with those practices. So I thought it might be good to start with just a little bit of an introduction to, you know, what a resource conservation district is, because there may be some people out there that aren't super familiar about the services that, and, and I'm going to use this acronym, the RCD, quite a bit tonight, because resource conservation district can be a little bit of a tongue twister. But um, can you just give us a little overview about, like, what is an RCD and, and, and talk a little bit about what? you know, the Mendocino County RCD um, does specifically? Sure. Um, RCDs were formed during the Dust Bowl era. Um, the one in Mendocino County was started in 1945 as the Willett Soil Conservation um, District and now resides in Ukiah. We have an office in Willits and we have an office in Boonville. Um, Primarily, our job is to make sure that resources that come through state and federal sources, such as uh, USDA or Department of Fish and Wildlife or the regional uh, or the North Coast um, Regional Water Quality Control Board, um, are you know are applied to projects on the ground that are prioritized um, by local landowners, and we have a five-member board. Um, they kind of help set our priorities and <clears throat> provide a lot of gu guidance. We have 13 staff positions. Um, about, I think, a third of those are in Willits on the bypass mitigation pro project, which is about 2,000 acres of um, riparian and grazing land with listed plant species uh, up in the Little Lake Valley. And we have a, a program that's been going on since about, I think, 2001 in the Navarro. And uh, we have an office there that's called the Navarro River Resource Center. We have um, five programs. We have water resources. We have forestry. We have soil health. We also have land stewardship, which includes the Willits Project. And we have operations, which is all the management that it takes to run our you know, 50 or so projects. So, you know, every um, county has at least one resource conservation district. There are two in Sonoma County. Um, their focus areas are distinct to the land that they serve and the people that they serve. And um, we work very closely with uh, USDA, um, what used to be called the Soil Conservation Service is now called the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And we are partners in a lot of projects and permitting program, a permitting program. Yeah, I was kind of I was kind of wondering about that a little bit, the relationship between the Natural Resource Conservation Service and the RCDs and um, 
I was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more about how those two entities interact. Okay, well, um, apparently, <clears throat> to my knowledge, there cannot be a soil conservation office for natural resources conservation service in a community without an RCD because we help provide guidance and sort of broker the services that they have for conservation practices in the community. So differing from, say, uh, getting a, a grant from, um, from Fish and Wildlife or the Regional Water Quality Control Board, um, landowners can apply directly to the USDA NRCS office. And they get um, an opportunity to apply for what they call uh, cost share incentive programs, such as um, EQIP, which stands for Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And those programs help working landscapes, and those can be forests, they can be vineyards, they can be market gardens, rangeland, um, anyone who has the intent or has practiced agricultural, uh, except for cannabis, which is not yet legal on a federal basis, uh, those um, landowners can apply directly, and they don't have to go through an RCD. But for most state and federal funds, conventional funds for restoration and conservation, most entities have to use either a nonprofit or an RCD to apply for program funds. So that's kind of it. We partner with them where we can, and um, and then when it comes to cannabis, we kind of go out on our own. So we do uh, outreach to cannabis farmers, legal cannabis farmers. We provide educational and outreach um, materials for them to practice best management for land stewardship. Right. Like one of the things that I think about is how many publications that the local RCD has put together for um, various land users, including cannabis growers. So, you know, if if um, if you're a, a farmer or a rancher um, or a cannabis cultivator, like what kind of information can you expect to find? Um, from some of the resources that have been um, produced by the RCD? Well, our, our most popular publication is the Handbook for Forest, Ranch, and Rural Roads, which was written um, by professional geologists at Pacific Watershed Associates, um, also called PWA. And they had a publication that came out, oh, probably about 20 years ago about now um, or a little bit more 25 years ago and that was recently um, updated in 2015 and that was my project that I managed and, and enjoyed working on it's um, it's available on our website and um, through PWA it's also translated into Spanish uh, that is really great um, guide for preventing erosion and controlling road-related sediment and preventing it from entering streams. And we've had a lot of workshops, and the workshop participants come from a, a wide range of land use, including cannabis. So that's that's like the bestseller, so to speak. Um, we do have a, a watershed best management practices guide for cannabis um, growers and other rural gardeners. 
Um, that's very been very popular. We're probably in our third printing of that. It's also available in Spanish on our website, or um, people can contact me directly at patty.madigan at mcrcd.org. So I'm happy for the public to outreach to me for if they need those kinds of resources. Um, we just did three Instagram videos on um, a cannabis program called GRASS-C, and that stands for Growing Responsible and Socially Sustainable Cannabis. Um, we did one in 2019, which is uh, a companion to the Watershed Best Management Practices Guide for Cannabis, and that one's really great. They're both good. I mean, all, all four of them, but um, we can... Uh, provide those kind of links if people want to contact us or they can look on our website which is mcrcd.org yeah and it's it's interesting because i know you know a lot of um nonprofits and resource professionals um sometimes for a variety of reasons have challenges that whether they're sometimes they're institutional um working with cannabis growers and and i'm just curious was that a, was the was that a just difficult initiative to start as a local rcd um and and how did you guys kind of overcome any challenges that that were presented as you began to develop resources for this special group of farmers well um we had a staff member who thought that this was a good idea shelly janik who um has moved on and, and i believe works as a cannabis consultant now and then deborah edelman on our staff um got funding from the regional north coast regional water quality control board to to develop this guide and so she was the principal author and she's been instrumental in any of the updates that we've had and the translation finding a translator our board um had mixed feelings about the cannabis outreach and education but i think we've convinced them that outreach and education are pretty benign you know like who can argue with asking gardeners to protect the soil and the environment and the water and run off and and be good neighbors and um you know be fire prepared and careful with any kind of um inputs into the soil so um legal cannabis has very strict guidelines about the use of water about their roads and um the use of any kind of uh, soil amendment or herbicide or pesticide. They really are on the very low end of um, applying anything to their, they're really kind of what you would call um, regenerative. Uh, most of the folks that are doing legal cannabis, especially outdoor and sun-grown, are really good land stewards. So I think that our board just kind of was okay with that because we're, we're doing really um, the kind of uh, stewardship that we would do with just about any kind of land use type. Um, so I, I don't think it was really a tough sell. I know in some areas it has been. Um, but here our board is, is very supportive at this moment, at this moment in time. So changing directions to talk about um, a topic that I feel like I know a little bit more about. I thought it would be good to discuss the work that you're doing in the Navarro specifically. Um, there's been a lot of um, 
kind of a collaborative effort in the Navarra River watershed really focused on enhancing stream flow that's going on currently. But I know that your work in the Navarro extends, you know, beyond that. So can you talk a little bit about some of the projects that you've been involved in and um, let us know, you know also kind of what you hope to see happen in the Navarro in the future? Sure. Well, I started working in the Navarro in 2001, and our, our focus seemed to be on um, working with landowners to prevent uh, stream bank failures and uh, to upgrade unimproved roads so that they um, are stormproof for the 100-year storm event. And so we've done about 60 miles of roads, and, and we've done some large wood projects. But if you don't have stream flow, that really kind of um, negates the effort. It doesn't really render them useless, but, you know, we're not really benefiting fish. And you and I talked earlier about how uh, salmon and steelhead are indicator species, kind of like the canary in the coal mine, that if fish can't survive, there is a whole host of other um, life forms in our watersheds that are going to have a hard time. So, by protecting fish, we're actually protecting ourselves and our communities and our families. So um, we got together in about 2014 with the Nature Conservancy and then Trout Unlimited a little bit later and um, formed a, a streamflow partnership. We call it the Navarro River Streamflow Enhancement Partnership. And we've applied for grant funds to support work that includes planning and study and monitoring for enhancing stream flows and looking at strategies that have the best chance of of meeting the targets of increasing flow. And when we talk about increasing flow, we're sometimes just talking about, I don't know if people can imagine this, but it's just a trickle of water that would connect pools enough so that young of the year and juvenile salmon and steelhead can go up and down stream to find cover and food and and find those cool temperatures that they need to survive. So things like storage and um, storage tanks, uh, off-stream storage, rainwater catchment. Um, we've looked at leaky ponds and helping uh, folks get um, those ponds to be more secure. We've looked, uh, we just recently did a study about um, um, potential release of pond water, which is a little daunting because, you know, it's kind of hard to find landowners that want to give up some water for fish. But, you know, we are looking for incentives and we're looking for um, the science that backs up the wisdom of doing something like that. And, of course, we're still doing large wood and um, have loved partnering with Trout Unlimited and you and your staff. And other than that, we're looking at things like people changing their water rights. And unfortunately, Matt couldn't be here, but we work with Matt Clifford and Trout Unlimited to work with landowners who are willing to um, forbear pumping in the summer. California water rights seem to be backwards from what we need. They allow pumping in the, in the, win in the summer, but not in the winter. And so the winter is when we have the water. So we need to flip-flop that. And so that requires uh, a change in a water right. And that could be either um, what's called a, oh, what is it called? SIU or uh, S, 
stream flow. Do you know what it is, Anna? I can't really even think of what it is. It tells you how much I know about water rights. Is are you talking about when someone can dedicate their yes. water right to yeah. in to yeah. an in-stream flow use? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the so the basic idea is that, you know, if you have a water right and maybe you're not using all of that water, um, you don't have a need for all of that water, you can dedicate a portion or all of that water right to an environmental use and so then it gets reappropriated for environmental uses um that's correct yeah. and, and the nice part about it is if you get um if you switch your water right you're not necessarily giving up your riparian water right if you get um right you change it so yeah you, you could change it to an appropriative and that's when you have you report your use because with a um riparian right you can't store it for more than 30 days so with um, an appropriative right you can store the water and um, yeah we're encouraging people to to um, store the winter the winter water and to use that stored water during the summer instead of diverting it from streams so that's it in a nutshell sorry I didn't get the acronyms oh geez <laughs> we live in a world of too many of them many acronyms and they usually yeah. are pretty confusing um, well, and, and, and this is great that you bring that up because the last few conversations I've had on the Ecology Hour have really been focused on some of the climate patterns that are changing. Um, and, and one of the things that has kind of consistently been coming up is just this um, acknowledgement that uh, precipitation is falling um, at different times of the year and kind of at, in, in, in different durations of time as well. And, and across the state, it's not really evident that we're getting less water per year. I mean, this was an extreme year across the state, and I think most places received less rainfall and snowpack than in other years. But overall, we're still getting the same amount of precipitation in the winter, but it's just falling at different times and at different places and at different rates. And so this idea of, you know, collecting and storing water when it's abundant and then use later is one that I think you know, I, I guess personally, I would like to see that land, that water management practice be employed a lot more because I think as we progress into this, what's, you know, been predicted as, um, you know, more frequent dry years, um, following that practice, we may actually be able to, to really um, enhance our water security. Yeah, exactly. One of the, one of the, good things that happened in the last three or four years is that if you put in a rainwater catchment system so that you're gathering the water from like your barn roof or your house roof and storing it, um, those tanks are not subject to an increase in property tax. So there's a property tax exemption. And so that's, it's not a cost share, but it is an incentive. Um, I'd like to see more cost share programs being uh, available to, to folks, sort of like there is for solar, because I think this is it's a really critical thing. Is um, you know I live in Comshe, and a lot of my neighbors don't have any water, and I see water trucks going by every day, and I go, well, that water had to come from somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, we're you know we we hear a lot from our elected officials about you know when the drought is over, we're going to do this, and and I think to myself, 
I don't know when that's going to be. I think we have to say we're going to have drought periods that are more frequent, probably more extreme. We probably will have storm events that are more extreme, um, but we can't count on that every year. So I think the, the water crisis or the water planning is here to stay. Let's, let's try to think positive and think that um, we'll all find ways to conserve and slow um, spread and sink water into the ground so that it's there when we need it. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an interesting idea. You know, it's funny that it hasn't really come up to provide more incentives for people to be able to store water. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding is that um, rainwater, so anything that's captured before it hits the land, actually doesn't require a water right that you can store that water without having to file a water right with the State Water Resource, Resources Control Board. Yeah, in the state of California, that's correct. Other places, that's not necessarily the case. So, yeah, and it's, we're, it's, we're lucky here. It's really remarkable. One of the things that I've learned um, from the work that has been ongoing in the Navarro and then also in other places, like in the Russian River, is like how um, really how there's when you're looking at stream flow and in a summer like this where if you go out into a creek you're likely to see isolated pools of water not you know contiguous stream flow going downstream but that it just takes such a tiny amount of water to reconnect those pools and how important that is for fish and other aquatic organisms because with that contiguous stream flow you have better oxygen in the water for those organisms and you have food transporting downstream and so i'm wondering you know in your work do you have a sense of what it you know in, in certain circumstances like how much um, additional stream flow would we need to potentially take these isolated pools and turn them into contiguous stream flow well, it's not very much like you said. Um, my colleagues at, uh, or our colleagues at TU and, and TNC, and my colleague Linda McElwee, who's um, basically the the person who is the mover and shaker in the Navarro these days, um, who works through the Navarro River Resource Center and is also um, an employee of the Resource Conservation District. They're working in Mill Creek, in, which is a tributary to the main stem. Navarro River, and um, they estimate that that watershed, you only need uh, 0.1 cubic feet per second, which is just a trickle. Yeah, that's so, amazing. 0.1, I think it is, actually. <laughs> I don't know. It's very small, you know. Sorry that I don't have the details, oh. but it is a very small amount. And one of the things that we did um, last year, we didn't have the funding or the time to do it this year, was that we did a pilot a coordinated diversion study where we had um, several landowners who without coordination may have all been pumping using their water right and um, you know irrigating their garden or filling their tanks at, um, at a, you know a sequential schedule instead of all pumping at once so there was um, time diversion that was coordinated in such a way that the impact of summer stream flow would be lessened. And we did, we were able to show a little bump on the hydrograph from that, as we have from the tanks that um, we put in in Mill Creek. So to date, we've put in 
I don't know what the total is. I want to say uh, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 gallons. So let's see, 60 and 39, 40. Yeah, somewhere. Well, we're close. But but we're not. We need to, we need to multiply that by our social security numbers. You know, it's, <laughs> we really do have to ramp it up, and so that's why I say incentives are really important. We've been really. Um, really fortunate to have funding from the Wildlife Conservation Board, which is an offshoot of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And we've had, um, we're, in our, we're gonna just start our third grant with them, which will be funding the work we're doing in the Navarro and also transporting some of those strategies that we've piloted in the Navarro over to Outlet Creek and the Eel. So um, we're looking forward to rolling that out. We're just now finishing, in fact, today I worked all day on a final report for the phase two WCB project and um, looked at my calendar and, and missed a bunch of things that I should have been working on. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity to, um, to pilot some of these strategies in the Navarro and then transport them to other coastal watersheds and in, in our region, in our county. So we talked a little bit about you know, ways that landowners can both provide some water security for themselves during these dry summer months, but also could potentially then allow for a little more water to, to, to stay in the streams. Um, what other kinds of um, resources are available for our community to learn about the drought? I know your colleague Joe Scriven has been on the radio and even on TV recently, and I'm just curious, you know, um, what, are, what are some of the things that people can do at home to try to conserve water? Well, my husband and I share the bathtub, so that's one, um, you know, um, not flushing the toilet uh, if it isn't really necessary. Um, I think, you know, not, you know, just being conservative, you know, like it's amazing how much water we use in our households. And so, um, you know, uh, planting drought tolerant um, natives and Mediterranean plants, um, you know, even your lawn, if you have a lawn, I have a weed patch, but when I, uh, we, we did our septic system, we um, ran out there and said, no, 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 don't plant uh, ryegrass, plant this stuff instead. So we got um, native plant seed that um, is a fescue and it, and it has very, very deep roots, which is, you know, is uh, another drought method is, is deep rooted perennial plants. Um, uh, you know, other things that you can do is, you know, capture some rainwater or reuse, you know, collect your dishwater or whatever you have, your rinse water. And, um, you know, you just, uh, yeah, if you don't need it, it the, the, the tough part about it is, is that um, you really need to repair things like leaks. Leaks is where we lose the most water. So if it's a leak in our, our water line or our irrigation, trying to catch those things before they, you know, you dump like two weeks worth of water out and one forget you drive off and forget to turn off the the sprinkler or you know you have your your toilets running for for hours or even days if you're on vacation so i mean when we leave we just shut our water off if we go on vacation you know maybe that's not such a good thing if, if your house is is in danger in a fire zone like we are but um 
Yeah, we have a, a web page on our website that's um, Drought Resources, and um, and you can reach out to Joe, Joe or Deborah Edelman, and uh, at our office, and just go to our website, and you can find their contact information. Um, yeah, and it's, it's it all sounds like kind of small potatoes when you're like, hey, check your leaks or get a low flow toilet or mm-hmm. get a low flow shower head, but that stuff really does add yeah. up and and all contributes towards having more water security during dry times. I know if I left, if I had, if I left my sprinkler on for longer than 45 minutes, I'd probably drain my well. That's, that's how low it is for me. So (laughs) it's, it's true. You know, there are, there are all those little things that are very cost effective and easy to do, you know, the storage, water storage, those kinds of things, they, they have a higher price tag. So that's why I'm talking about incentives and, Maybe like tax breaks, although, you know, like that's <clears throat> kind of a hard sell. But um, I do think that that would be a good idea. I think that the more incentives there are, you know, it just shouldn't be people that have big fat pocketbooks that that are able to do, you know, conservation practices such as water conservation strategies. Yeah. Um, we should all be encouraged and incentivized to do what's right, you know, what's good for ourselves and our communities. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, it, you hear about these horrible situations like the town of Mendocino, which is basically out of water. Um, and the best time to plan for a drought is not when you're in one. <laughs> and we just recently met with um, assembly member Jim Wood, who said that the state did get quite a few resources during the last drought period. And unfortunately, not a lot of those resources were applied to preparing for the next drought and the next drought. So, right, and uh, you know the lessons last, learned. Right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the last I heard, we're looking at another potential dry winter because there is it's a La Nina year, so mm-hmm. um, we may not, you know, be beyond this, you know, quote unquote drought, um, if it can even be called a drought. <laughs> So, you know, and the ripple effect of that is really bad. Like, I see a lot of trees that are dying as I'm driving, and it's not just sudden oak death, although that's very apparent as I drive back and forth to Ukiah or through Anderson Valley and, and Compshi to the coast. Um, you know, we have wildlife that are, you know, wandering out looking for water and food sources. I have a little kiddie pool for my dog, and I'm sure the wildlife, I know the deer are always coming through our property and seeking some kind of, you know, uh, relief and refuge and um so it's you know everybody's feeling it yeah that's Even a good point when, you know in these um time periods where there's mm-hmm. a lot of environmental stressors that are impacting all living organisms we do tend to see that um that kind of relationship between or that interaction between people and wildlife those those interactions have become more frequent because those wildlife are stressed and they are looking for resources in new places. Um, and it's just you know, definitely something that we have to be aware of. I guess, Anna, it's not just it's not just wildlife, it's people who are moving out of the cities because of COVID and then people who are moving out of the wildlands because of fires. And so you're gonna have a lot of company over there on the Mendocino coast pretty soon, I um, I predict. So it's, it's, a, it's a very um, serious situation and we all, can do something and we can help each other um, spread the, the, the message. And um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, like 
like I said the other night, I think that um, this year I'm hoping that we've seen some of the worst. <clears throat> I'm hoping that we start to see things turn around a little bit because um, if you look at the hydrograph, um, 2017 and 2019 were both pretty good water years. So, um, and, and when we were out doing our workshop this weekend, we saw baby coho. So that's true. So there is hope. I always like to end on a hopeful mm -hmm. note, and and uh, I like to try to stay optimistic because it's it's pretty depressing this year. It can be definitely, but that's the thing. In, in geologic history, this isn't the first time the West has seen <laughs> yeah. these dry years. Exactly. So, you were talking a lot about fire, and so I know the RCD is involved in the, or, or leads the Fire Safe Council and has been doing a lot of work in communities that are particularly um, kind of uh, at high risk of um, certain kinds of fire dangers. Oh, we got our call back. All right. Hello. You're on there. Hi. I wanted to know if there are any ideas of how to repair the uh, algae bloom that is overtaking the mouth of the Navarro River. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Excellent question. Patty, do you well, want to feel okay, that? Well, we can, maybe we can tag team this one. Sure. My understanding is, is that it's basically a combination of several different things. It's algae in the Navarre River has been around since I was a kid and going there on uh, to camp. And so it's um, certain kinds of algae um, can be um, exacerbated by if you have um, an algal bloom and then you have a cloudy day and then that algae dies and floats to the surface. So a combination of nutrient load, sunlight, and... Um, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you have a foggy day and then um, those organisms which need the sunlight to reproduce for photosynthesis can die off. And so in certain cases, you have things like blue-green algae that are toxic um, and not great for people or dogs, probably not for fish either. Um, but what can you do? Um, one of the things we can do is not put so much stuff on our soil. Soil amendments are probably one of the, I think probably one of the primary um, things call it causing an increase in, um, you know, it's, it's climate, it's, it's a lot of different factors, it's water temperatures, but also we're putting things in our gardens that at whatever gardens or our watersheds that um, run off and get into our stream systems that all end up in the main stem river. And then when the bar closes, those, um, and we don't have flushing flows, then uh, we have kind of a, um, a perfect uh, soupy mess. So I think one of the things that we can do is promote um, more low-tech um, low soil amendments that don't, and, and be very judicious about how we apply them. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it, what happens with algal blooms, kind of a perfect storm, you get reduced stream flows and you mm -hmm. get warmer water temperatures and then um, 
and then like you said there's there's these inputs of, of nutrients which is commonly in the form of nitrogen and and all of those things combined are just a perfect growing environment for algae and not all algae is bad in fact algae is really important in aquatic ecosystems because there's important food um, like macroinvertebrates and diatoms that live on algae and so um, it's not necessarily an indicator of, of bad stream health, but there is a balance. And as more algae grows, it takes up more oxygen, and then it's, there's less available for other organisms. And so I think, like, really working to protect and maintain our stream flows is one of the most important things we can do, in addition to what you said, Patty. And, and that comes from having good management practices, not over-fertilizing our gardens, or having good vegetation buffers that can um, basically, um, you know, can be intercept uh, surface water or storm flow runoff before it goes into our streams, and all of those things could help with algal blooms. But they are, they are a natural part of an aquatic ecosystem, but there is a point where they can get out of balance and kind of cause problems. Um, we do have another question. If you're ready, Patty, we can try another one. Sure. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. The um, green masses that float at the mouth of the Navarra are actually seagrasses. It's a, it's a ditch grass called virgin grass with the cirrhosa, and it develops some superficial algae, but that's not algae. That is a vascular plant. It's been there for many decades as I've observed it, and uh, people easily confuse it with floating algae, but it's not the green algae like Clodophora, it's lupia. <laughs> it's a, a ditch grass, a ridging grass. A lot of dabbling ducks eat it. Fish um, like to forage in it. It's uh, one of the fish nursery species. It's a really important component of the ecosystem. Okay, great. Thank you. Appreciate that. Wonderful caller. I, I wish the caller would send me a uh, an email. Um, I don't text because I'm out in the boondocks here and I can't get texts, but we get a lot of calls at the Navarre River Resource Center about the quote-unquote algae at the um, estuary at the mouth of the Navarro, but um, there is plenty of algae uh, in the Navarro main stem and, and in the in the streams, so that's really very encouraging to hear that about the estuary. All right. Thank you. You can get more information at Friends of Wallala River's website. Um, okay. Uh, yes, it's posted. Great, thank you. Excellent, yeah, thank you. All right, and if there's any other questions that are coming in, just a reminder that you can call 895-2448, and we'll try to get to you as soon as we can. Be a little patient if I don't pick up right away. Um, but, you know, right before we got those calls, which those were great questions, and thank you, um, you know, we, we were talking a little bit, uh, uh, the, you know, the topic of fire came up, and I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about, and actually, interestingly enough, I was um, talking with a friend who had brought up that they were really concerned about their um, private neighborhood. I think they were in kind of an HOA type situation, and they were looking for resources about how they could be more fire safe. And I encouraged them to reach out to the RCD. So could you talk a little bit about like what kind of resources are available and what people could learn if they, if they partnered with the RCD? Well, the Fire Safe Council is pretty independent now, although we did um, provide a, um, an umbrella for the Fire Safe Council when it was transitioning from being basically a volunteer, all-volunteer organization to now um, they have an executive director, Scott Crotty, 
and um, they have their own separate board of directors. Um, we still um, have a linkage to them, um, but they're they're doing a lot of projects that I would call um, fire wise and fire preparedness in terms of um, they're doing they have a chipper and they do chipping days and they have. Uh, programs, incentive programs um, that they work with uh, folks to um, find ways that they can do, um, you know, fuel reduction projects and house hardening projects. Um, we have a, a forestry program, a forest health program at the RCD, and we can help provide guidance for landowners who, or HOAs, that want to do. Um, large scale, we kind of work on landscape level projects rather than small projects because we just don't have the capacity to do lots and lots of small projects. That being said, we can cobble together lots of small projects and make one big project. So those um, folks, um, both Scott Crotty and then um, Bryce Hutchins, who's at the, um, the RCD now uh, in, in our forestry program, are good resources and then actually going on our website as well. Um, I know that uh, my neighbors have recently done a lot of um, fuels reduction work and I'm, I'm very happy we've done our, you know, we've done what we can. Um, but there are uh, incentive programs and there are cost share programs that I'm not super familiar with. Um, NRCS through the EQIP program does have a cost share incentive program um, fund and I know that the Fire Safe Council has, and the RCD does do projects, but they're mo mostly in partnership with um, other fire, you know, other um, like, um, you know, Refi up north or the Piercy Fire District or BLM or um, Mendocino National Forest. So, you know, we, we participate in large-scale projects mostly and not the smaller ones. Yeah, so that makes sense. We've just kind of uh, felt that the, you know, we had to identify what the Fire Safe Council did and was really good at and what we do and can do well. Yeah. All right. Looks like we have another question. So, hello. You're on the air. Uh, hello. I would like to find out what you think or feel about the PG&E uh, recent claims that they're going to be cutting thousands and hundreds of trees in the, to make the wires in the, on the, like the Flame Creek. I have a daughter that has 17 acres on Flame Creek, and I'm just very much concerned about the erosion and the, the, the uh, overlogging, just the logging in general, and how that is impacting. And also Caltrans with their storage of their, of the, uh, I call it, it's not duff. It's it's the asphalt like alongside the uh, highway 128 between Boonville and and the coast. When they just pile all that stuff, and then if it floods, instead of it being sediment, it's it goes into the river and it causes it to it to be clogged up. There's a lot of issues with the larger uh, Caltrans and the logging, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. All right, thank you. Well, I guess I have to say that uh, the RCD is non-regulatory, so we don't um, we don't necessarily we're studying that situation that the caller brought up uh, in terms of the big, vast clearing that PG&E is doing alongside their power lines. But um, I believe that there is a federal regulatory commission that 
um, oversees some of that, <clears throat> which makes it a little bit tough <clears throat> for us to try to, to weigh in. But I do think that um, better uh, sediment control measures and erosion control measures should be employed there. And it just seems to me like extremely drastic. It seems like it's way, way, way too much. And it's not it's not, a, it might be great for fire protection. It might be great for protecting the assets of PG&E. But um, this is my own opinion now. I think it's too much. And um, I think that we need to, if you're interested in so, um, in your move to do something, that you should call your elected officials and uh, register your concern and um, take lots of pictures. And in terms of the, the piling of resources next to the highway, they're supposed to have erosion control around those. Um, I know that when we do projects, say we are upgrading a road and we have um, those kinds of materials on site on, on public and private property, we're held to a very high standard for um, stopping work when it rains and making sure we have all the erosion control measures in place. Um, whether it's rain or a spill or anything like that, we have to um, use all the best management practices. Otherwise, we get our permits pulled. Yeah. So that never happened, but, you know, we we're very careful. And, and when we do contract with our contractors, they all get training in how to um, protect the resource while they're out there working. Right. Looks like we have another question. So I'm going to transfer over. Oh, and please make sure your radio is off and... Then caller, what's your question? Like we have oh. another question. You're going to need to turn your radio off for us to take your question. Um, try one more time. Nope. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, all right. So, yeah, I mean, I know uh, with all of our projects, too, we're held to pretty high standards. And I think Caltrans is likely held to the same standards um, as far as, you know, having erosion control materials in place so that there are not substances leaking into our streams. But it is really challenging when one environmental disaster kind of trumps another potential environmental hazard and and finding a balance and I think really requires thinking ahead because when we're in the midst of a catastrophe um, you know kind of the the ways that we react become really focused and 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 um, I know that when there is fire response there actually are quite a bit of factors that come into play but in the in the heat of the moment to, to use a bad pun um, Sometimes the main focus just comes to be, you know, just making sure that fires aren't started and fires don't continue to progress. And there are sometimes unfortunate, um, you know, um, you know, downfalls to that. The the environmental different environmental factors suffer. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, we all live in a fire-adapted landscape, but we're, we're not so fire-adapted <laughs> as uh, basically the, the, the European settlement that came here um, and at a certain point in time started suppressing fires. And we know that our um, First Nations people and our Pomo uh, 
local Pomo people burned and, um, and that farmers and ranchers used to burn. And they kept those fires very low intensity and, and basically cleared out um, the, the undergrowth that, you know, that was, uh, you know, an ignition factor in, in some of the fires that we are having now is that, you know, you, you create a ladder, a fuels ladder, and uh, then they become fi- crown fires, which which in wildfires are very hard to stop. You know, right. we, I have my go bag by, uh, by my door, and I'm you know ready at all times. I've got I've got to change the dog food out because it's a year old. But um, but I think we we need to learn how to adapt to fire, and um, you know we we aren't always going to be able to suppress it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, um, we probably have time for one more question, but before I take this next question, um, I just wanted to kind of do a little plug for you guys because I know you're hiring a new forestry program manager. Yes, we are, and a soil health program um, uh, coordinator. So uh, folks can uh, inquire at info at mcrcd.org or they can check on indeed i'm not sure if it's currently posted or not it may be on our website i haven't been on our website um in the last week because i've been busy doing other things but um you know if people even want to reach out to me um or ask me about those positions i can kind of tell them you know what's up so yeah awesome okay well let's try one more caller all right, caller, you are on the air. Hello, caller. Oh, hi. I can barely hear you. Okay. Hi, this is Larry Desmond from Willis, and this thank you for the show. And hello, Patty. Um, and the the, the 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 facilitator of the program. I didn't get your name when you started. Oh, no problem. I'm but, Anna but Halligan. <laughs> thank you both. I just want to tag on to the water meter use and. Uh, this is, you know, they're, they're about 180 bucks, 180 bucks or so. But it's they're very informative. It tells you what you're doing with your water, how much you're using, you know, whether you can use less or more. But I think the biggest thing is it identifies leaks for you because, as Patty mentioned, leaks are a huge issue for people because they're often sight unseen. But the meter will tell you that there's a leak. <clears throat> now it's your job, job job to find it, but it gives you great information. I really support it strongly. And if you have multiple tanks, consider valving off one or two. These are like, so this there's a catastrophic leak, you don't lose all your water. And it happens for so many people, even people with large, like 50,000-gallon tanks. If they take that water and just use it for the garden or whatever they're using it on, take it to a smaller tank first with a float valve so that big tank fills a secondary tank. So if you have, what I'm getting to is if there's an, a leak, a catastrophic leak, you don't lose the entire volume of tank so quickly. It's going through the other tank. The process slows down. <clears throat> so just some add-ons. Great show. And on the water tanks, keep the lids on. I see so many – I do water resource um, advice for people, and I just see a lot of tanks, even if it's used for irrigation or even fires, keep the lid on because animals get in or drown, and then they'll plug the system up. It sounds disgusting, but it happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen to your drinking water. Anyway, thank you for the show both. Appreciate it. Oh, excellent. Thanks for the tip. Appreciate sure. it. Hey, Larry. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Yeah. Larry um, was on our board for, for several years, and uh, he's a great resource, and I um, – would like to add that when we at the RCD um, put a tank in or help landowners with tanks, we require a water meter. And we actually know of a landowner 
uh, in the Navarro who lost a whole tank full of water last year. And, you know, um, that's a very precarious situation because then they have to buy water. And, um, you know, this year you're not even, that's not even a guarantee that you're going to, you know, and it's very expensive. So, yeah, a water meter is a smart, <clears throat> affordable investment. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's minuscule compared to the cost of putting in a tank. So uh, highly recommend. It's really great advice. And I'm, you know, I haven't seen a water tank that hasn't been covered, but um, it's a good heads up about that as well. And the secondary tank. Yeah, that um, that is really excellent advice. So we're, we're coming up on the end of the hour, um, and I'll just give you a chance. Patty, is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? I really appreciate you, especially with such short notice. I, I'm so lucky to get to work with you for, for the listeners. Patty and I work pretty closely together. We've been collaborating on projects for a long time, and she's really just an excellent person to work with and a, and a great resource. Um, to tap when you have any questions about the 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 kind of happenings in the county but you know anything else you want to share before we close well i just like to say the feeling is mutual and partnering is where it's at you know our our partnerships just amongst our staff and you know with the trout unlimited and the nature conservancy and nrcs and you know, our, our landowner friends who have really, you know, they've gone out on a limb to trust us to be on their property and to sign an agreement for several years of, of us, you know, um, monitoring our uh, projects with them. And I have to say that, um, you know, we've been very, very fortunate to have such great people um, to work with. And um, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing what's next, you know, it's what's around the corner. So... Yep. In our office, we say teamwork makes the stream work. <laughs> I concur. That's a good one. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll come to a close. But thanks again to everyone that listened tonight. And I look forward to hosting again in about a month when I'm joined with by my colleague, Matt Clifford, so we can talk about water policy. Thank you, Anna. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.